Hey everyone, welcome to the Mike Rosehart Show. We're a few minutes late here, sorry about that. I had some technical difficulties getting set up and you know, having kids and you know, the whole work from home thing. I've got the kids at home and you know, it's just it's chaos. And so a few minutes late and I apologize for that. But uh, today I wanna to talk about how you can retire early in like five years. And it depends on your goals. It depends on you know what, you, how, what kind of retirement lifestyle you wanna have. It depends on, um, really that's the main determinant is what kind of life do you want to live and how frugal are you willing to be to achieve that goal? So what sort of standard of living are you looking for? And if I know that and I can quantify that, right? So I find out what that standard of living looks like and then we can cost that out and say, this is what it's actually gonna cost from a housing perspective, from a food perspective, to live the life that I want, from a transportation perspective, et cetera and so forth. So that's, um, that's what it all is. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you guys on. Everyone can hear me loud and clear. It should be all good. Aiden, thank you for the super chat. Appreciate that. I'm, uh, I'm gonna take your super chat money and I'm gonna buy a silver coin. Actually, 299 probably wouldn't even buy me a silver coin, but we're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna talk a little bit about COVID because you know, state of the market, state of the union, I like to talk about what's been up in my life. Uh, I'm still buying real estate right now in London, Ontario. There are lots of deals. I'm seeing 1% rule type deals. I'm seeing high cap rates, I'm seeing a lot of cash flow. And the best part is I'm seeing reduced competition. So for the first time in a long time, you can begin to negotiate back and forth on the deals that you're working on. This whole economic shutdown means there's more opportunity for us who are still working hard. And I wanna share one thing before I get into how to retire early and I'm just doing this for more than new listeners. And for those who already know the story, you know how to retire early, we're just gonna rehash the same stuff, but put a new twist on it and, and talk about it in a, in a different light. So if you have any questions along the way, pop those in the comments. Um, be happy to answer any of those any of those questions. But um, a couple of things. The first one is, I've been seeing some interesting articles, like for instance, there's one I'll put in the comments after about, uh, hey Watts, uh, about the antibodies. People are testing positive for the antibodies, meaning they've had COVID or been exposed to COVID-19 and since recovered. Some people aren't showing symptoms, they've recovered from it. Um, but what we know is that from the studies that we're seeing, a lot more people have COVID-19 than we thought. So if a lot more people in, in one study, the like California study that I was um, reading, it seemed pretty legitimate. Uh, they were testing people for the antibody and uh, something like four, 0.6% or something of the population had it in California. So interesting, if that's the case, and I think it is the case, because I know lots of people in London, Ontario that have had COVID or have been exposed directly with someone who had COVID, didn't get tested, but know the person who got tested and are sure that they shared enough space that they would have got it too, got sick with the same symptoms of COVID, didn't report to anyone, and then recovered and were just fine. So there are people who are recovering who are just fine. What we know is that this is a serious thing, right? Like it's like pneumonia. It's, pneumonia kills thousands of people a week all through the flu season, right? So it's, but that's on, no one ever publishes that, right? No one ever shuts the economy down for that. It may be an overreaction, I don't know. I'm not a medical doctor, but what I, we do know is I think what we're finding is that the number of cases that, of COVID that actually exist are like 40 times higher than are reported. The only accurate numbers we have are those being hospitalized for COVID. That's an accurate number. Now, the people dying from COVID, some of those death certificates are, I would call, labeling the straw that broke the camel's back um, is basically what they're doing here, right? Like someone who was already in like stage four cancer, really is dying of cancer, would have died from like a, a breeze, but then they got COVID and they died, right? So did they really die from COVID? 
Anyway, so the death certificates we're seeing are, I think, a little higher than probably they should be, being mislabeled a little bit. But let's just assume that all those death certificates that are being labeled COVID-19 are actually just COVID-19. If there are 40 times more cases, which is what we're finding from the data of people being tested who have the antibody, meaning they were exposed to COVID-19, that means that the death rate is actually 40 times lower than we think. Because we know how many people are actually dying of it. We know how many people are actually being hospitalized because we're tracking that. But we don't know how many people actually have had the virus. And there's way more people that are being exposed to it than they're reporting. And if, like, let's say 5% of the population has now been exposed to it, the death rate is actually pretty close to, if you run the numbers, I shared it on my, on my Instagram at Mike Rosart, the actual numbers. If you assume now that, like, based on those studies, that 40 times more people have had been exposed to it, like 4 or 5% of the population now potentially has been exposed to COVID, then the death rate is actually pretty close to the common flu if you're healthy. Uh, in fact, no, just in general. But if you're healthy, the, the same pretty much as the common flu. So death rate's actually a lot lower. Hospitalization rate, right? We're talking about like a 1% death rate or like much, much lower than that. Hospitalization rate, again, a much, much lower. I could pull up the numbers here. But anyway, that's not what this segment's gonna be about. I just wanted to share that because every week I've been doing an update about COVID-19. I think you should be safe. I think you shouldn't expose yourself unnecessarily. Um, I do think that anyone watching this should take precautions. I'm wearing masks when I'm going out. I'm not touching anything. I'm washing my hands religiously. I'm keeping social distancing, but I'm carrying on with life. And that's the important part. People are paralyzing themselves and like the economic overreaction and shutdown, I think is, is too much. So that's a big piece that I just keep wanting to address here because I think that the, there's something else going on here. Let's, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but maybe it's a, a grab for power by the government. Maybe it's, it's something else, some other hidden agenda. Um, maybe it's a setup for, for a war to bring the economy into, into strength in North America. I don't know. But I think that maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's just an overreaction by the government. Let's just hope that that's what it is. Uh, but let's be clear. It's an overreaction. Um, if more, I, I think if more people were exposed to the virus and we had like 10% or 20% of our population, which I think is coming, 10 or 20% of the population probably will get it. It's highly contagious. It's easy to get. So if everyone, a lot of people are getting exposed to it and then we'll see the true death rate. And I think what we're going to find is that it's in line with like a severe or a slightly severe flu. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, check that study out. I'll, I'll send a link to it. There's another one I was looking at too, where now they can test if you have had the antibodies um, for COVID-19, meaning you've been exposed to it or had it. Either you weren't symptomatic or you got it and it was like a, I, I actually um, had a couple, a couple weeks ago, I actually had, I didn't want to put it on social media because I don't want people to think that I had COVID. But for like two days, I had a lot of the symptoms. I was really sick um, for like a day and a half. And uh, maybe I had it. I don't even know. It's possible. Um, it's possible my family had it too. I, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I think that's overreaction. Big time. A big time overreaction. Damn, Steve killed himself. <laughs> no, guys. He was best friends with Bill Gates. Don't you know? Gates went to the island all the time. <laughs> Have you guys been following some of those conspiracy theories? <laughs> he actually did go to Epstein's Island though. Like Bill Gates was known to have gone there. Um, let's go with some question and answer and then we'll get into like the real topic here, which is how do you retire early? What do you do through this economic climate? And how do we react economically from the repercussions of the overreaction of the government, right? To shut everything down pretty much. Um, one thing is I think, one thing coming out of this, one trend I think that I just want to share before I get into the, the nuts and bolts about how to retire early, because that's it's actually pretty dead simple, um, is businesses are moving online. 
So retailers that were like brick and mortar are realizing that they can sell things online. And so there's gonna be a lot less demand for commercial real estate. So if you're in commercial real estate in any way, I think that's gonna be a big pullback. I've been bearish on commercial real estate for a long time. That's just, I've believed in the trend for the last five years that I think that like universities and colleges are going more online. And that's now a trend. Like I think a lot more people are gonna figure out that they can learn and deliver content using technology. You can like wear virtual reality stuff now that feels like you're in a classroom, right? And you can, you can force the same sorts of like attendance type pieces to keep people accountable virtually. So that might mean that brick and mortar universities and colleges may be going away. I knew this in 2010, 2012, when Treehouse came out with these really great online programs. I was seeing a ton of this online stuff where you could learn to code, you could learn to do all these different things online for free. And I was like, wow, this is cool. This is the future of education. Having been through uh, you know, an economics degree and been through like you know, studied psychology at Western University and the Richard Ivey School of Business, I can attest that most of my studying didn't really happen in the classroom. Um, most of it happened in a desk at home, me like reading and cramming. So, I mean, the social aspect is great of university and college. And I think there'll always be a piece for that, but um, something you should consider. I think going out of COVID-19, businesses are going to be operating differently than they did before. Universities are going to be operating. The school system is going to be um, operating in a different environment than it did before. This has implications for, again, commercial real estate is a good example. Um, anyone who has any brick and mortar type stuff, it's going to change, right? The environment in which we're operating in is changing. But if you can get ahead of that curve, if you could sell courses online, for instance, people are looking to consume online content now more than ever. It'd be a great business to be in. I think online courses are going to do very, very well in the coming years. I wouldn't be surprised if my daughter, by the time she gets to university time, is like, I want to do a one-year um, picking these 20 courses that I want to take to learn to become like a master real estate investor or learn to become like whatever, whatever profession or skill or like be like get an entrepreneur's MBA in one year online. And that type of thing is gonna exist because you won't have useless electives. Like I had to suffer through a sociology class. I remember in first year, an essay sociology class. It was forced, I had to write essays every week. It was so annoying. I, I didn't enjoy the content. The teacher was, was terrible. Um, the classes were, it was filled with a bunch of social justice warriors who were just arguing that like, capitalism's evil and like money's evil and we should just like destroy society and these educational like I don't know there's some paradigms there that I don't even want to get into but you shouldn't have to be forced to learn and take courses that you don't enjoy and that's the current university and college curriculum you're forced to take courses that are core to your program that are not going to help you at all in the real world um, so that's a huge benefit I think coming out of this is we're going to realize that those non-essential things um we don't need them in our life. And so that's that's amazing. Uh, so get on that trend, get on that bag, and invest in that. Technology, again, more important now than ever. I've been saying that we are blessed to live in the world that we live in today in the sense that where, wherever before in history was there a chance to climb the economic ladder as easily as it is today? Like I grew up with non-affluent parents, right? Like single mom, she's making like minimum wage. I wasn't exposed to anyone wealthy. There was no one to teach me about real estate investing. There was no one to teach me about how to do, you know, creative financing or, or um, you know, how to put together a deal or even how to like act with good business acumen or, you know, write offers or all those things that I had to learn how to do. I learned most of what I know today, not for a mentor, but for free online in forums, often through just poking at people who are more successful than I was. 
And that's all that, like my success today, the reason I'm a multimillionaire is because of the internet. I was able to access information at a library, not even on my own computer, at a library. I didn't get my own computer until I was in grade nine. My first time with like internet connection, I think it was in yeah, grade eight or grade nine. And I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 18. I used other people's landlines until I was 18. So I grew up in, a, in an age where like I was too poor. My parents didn't pay for a cell phone for me and we lived like kind of rural. So there was like hardly any internet besides dial-up. But even I was able with that, with that limited technology, I was able to, to learn all about real estate investing. And I failed a bit and I learned through that failure, right? And you guys have seen me document on the channel over the last, geez, almost two years now, maybe a year and a half. I don't know how long we've been doing this YouTube channel for, but um, a while. And I was blogging in 2016, 2017. I stopped paying for my blog, so it turned off, but I had like 50 or 100 articles on there where I was blogging and writing about a lot of what I was doing. And that's a blessed time. Up, up until, you know, the last 15 years or so, there was no way you had to find someone who was doing this and then apprentice under them or like meet them for coffee or like have a face to face. There was no way, like no one was writing books about this. Just no one was talking about it. The internet makes all this information free and it makes it out there for everyone to, to ingest. And I think that that's the future coming out of COVID is that we need to realize how blessed we actually are. Um, it's just, just fantastic. And by the way, I see all the comments coming in there. I can't read them all right now because I'm just going on a rant, but I will in a second go line by line, question by question, and hit all of those questions for you guys. I try my best to provide absolute transparency and I uh, pretty much just speak what's on my mind. Again, I probably should have the bottom of every single video. I am not a CACPA. I did go down that path, but didn't finish. And uh, I am not by any means a lawyer or accounting professional. And so do not trust any of my advice. I did work as a financial planner for a time, but I'm no longer licensed. And so anything I say is just my own opinions. Um, so yeah. I gotta say that because I gotta protect myself, eh? But uh, okay, let's do some questions and then I'll go into, no, I'll do the how, I, how you can retire early. So how do you retire early in five years? What is the math behind this, right? It's super dead simple. If I can find out what you're spending, I can tell you and what you're earning, I can tell you exactly how long it's gonna take you to retire, right? By manipulating the variables. Effectively, it's what you're earning against your spend rate will equal how much you're saving and then I can figure out how much you actually need to retire based on your current spend rate. So it's all, it really comes down to your burn rate. That's the most important part. And your burn rate is how much you need to live, how much you spend. If you have a Lambo in the driveway and a brand new BMW on lease and you're traveling six times a year for vacation for fun and you live in a you know 8,000 square foot um, house in, in Bel Air, you're, you're not, and you're making 150 grand a year, you're not gonna retire in five years. It's just not gonna happen unless you get some lucky windfall. But I like to look with, certainties and with absolute certainty anyone can retire in five years that requires you to reduce your burn rate so i'll give you an example if you were um if you made 100 grand a year and you could learn to live on 10 grand a year through rent hacking or house hacking which means maybe you lived on 20 grand a year but you had 10,000 in rent income from a, a roommate you brought in or you had a lower unit in your your own house you live in you could bring in to reduce your spending so like myself for instance we live we spend like 40 50 grand a year something like that i don't track it exactly anymore because it doesn't really matter to me. It's a waste of my time. There was a time when I tracked it religiously, but now like I could literally spend whatever. It doesn't matter. So I, I audit from time to time to see where I'm, what I'm spending. Like I'll just like look at one of my statements and see what I've been spending. But um, let's say I spend 40 or 50 grand right now a year. I house hack. So I have my lower unit that brings in another, you know, $2,500 a month, let's say. That means I'm really spending not like four or five grand a month, but really spending like less than two grand a month because I house hack. So that's how I get my living expenses way down. I spend less than the poverty line every year and I live a great life. So that's an example of like how you could do that. But 
can do it with rent hacking. If you don't have the money to buy a house, you can just rent a place and then get roommates. Um, but yeah, so you're spending, first off, what you're spending. So if you're spending, say, 25 grand a year net, so maybe you're spending 40 grand, but you have a roommate to help offset some of your costs, or you rent out your basement, or you have some way to, to generate some uh, expense offset, let's call it. So you're spending like 25 grand a year. 25 grand a year means you need, based on the 4% safe withdrawal rate, $625,000 to retire early, right? Now, if you use an 8% safe withdrawal rate, if you're in real estate, 8% safe withdrawal rate from your cash flow is really, really conservative actually. But if you're in a, if you're mostly a stock portfolio, again, most of the professionals will say a 4% safe withdrawal rate is the safe way to go. In real estate, especially in my area, we have 10 cap rate type properties, which allow us to withdraw every year 8% from our portfolio pretty safely. And then we still have mortgage pay down and appreciation, keeping everything um, growing and, and beating inflation, right? So um, real estate's a great way with leverage because you can put 20% down, you can get a five to one return. Um, so 8% is like super conservative. Um, the people who retire on three or four or five properties, they put a couple hundred thousand dollars into those properties as down payments and they just live on the cash flow. So there are ways to generate great returns, but let's not look at that. I talk about that on the channel. That is a way to rent, retire early faster, but you don't even need that to retire early in five years. You can do it without any real estate, just the stock portfolio. So let's just assume a 4% return, super low return. You don't invest in real estate, you just do stocks, collect the 4% return. Um, again, we know that you can get, I know you guys are gonna jump in the comments and say, hey Mike, you know, I can live off the rental income from two properties that I own, they generate a thousand a month each or something. I know, you can get great returns on your money in real estate because of leverage. But let's just pretend you can't for the people who are following who don't wanna get involved in real estate or, and then if you are investing in real estate, just know that instead of five years, you can retire in like a year and a half. Um, if I had to start tomorrow, I could walk you guys through. Someone's gonna ask this probably, but Mike, what would you do if you started again from fresh? In two, three years, I'd be retired again. Starting at zero, I'd be back there again. It'd be actually a lot easier than the first time I did it because I have the knowledge and experience and the connections, but um, money's not really that, like money helps, sure. I can get into deals that I couldn't before. I'm looking at multi-million dollar deals, it's, it's fun, it's great, but I could put those together, to be honest, without any of my own money these days. And um, if I had none, I would start and I would, I would show you, I'll show you guys later. At the end of the segment, someone remind me and I'll walk you guys through. I did it about, about 15 weeks ago, because I, I do every every Wednesday we go live, right? And I did a, if you guys are who watch loyally, you remember, I did one where um, I, I walked through how I would start again and I showed how I would get back to where I am today. And every time you ask me, I have a little bit different spin and a little bit different flavor, but it just sort of depends on what mood I'm in. Um, <laughs> but okay, so uh, to finish this, line of thought that I had. You say you spend 25 grand a year. So your $25,000 a year is like you're, you can live well on 25,000 a year, a couple grand a month. You're like, hey, a couple grand a month I can live well. That'll sustain all my living costs. That's my retirement budget. So what do I need to get enough? How much do I need in passive income? Well, you need $25,000 a year in passive income to cover those expenses. So how much do you need a nest egg to support that passive income? It's the 4% rule, so you divide it out, and it's 25 years of living expenses. If you have 25 years of living expenses set aside, so 25 years of living expenses times 25,000 spending gives you, what, $625,000? So you have $625,000 in your nest egg that you need to retire early, right? So that's the important piece there. Um, oh, my dog's trying to get in. Little bugger. Can you see him there? He's a bugger. Um, what was I going to say? Lost my train of thought there. Dog interrupted my thoughts. He's like, ah, I was trying to get your homework, Mike. Um, so $625,000. How do you get there in five years? It's pretty pretty simple. 
if the, the basically the answer to retiring in five years is based on a 90% savings rate. So you'd have to be making enough that you can save 90% of your income. So if you make 50 grand a year, you have to find a way to live on like five grand a year, which again means you have to house hack or rent hack to get there in five years, or you have to be starting with some assets at this point. So if you're like 30 years old right now and have a, a house with $100,000 in equity in it, then you can retire in five years. If you're just starting fresh right now, you have to live, you have to find a way to live on 10% of your income or increase your income enough that you can save it all. And hang on, so I'll explain that in a second. I saw a comment pop up. It was actually really relevant. So $625,000 for 25 years, you're forgetting inflation, no. So no, um, the idea is this. If you had $625,000 on average, your portfolio generates in the S&P 500, if you're just like putting it out there in, in a diversified fund, if you're not investing in real estate or businesses or private lending, which all generate way higher than uh, about 69 to 7.3%. So roughly about 6.9 to 7.1% returns what you can expect. Inflation hedges around 2%. I like to say this, withdraw 4% from your portfolio, leave 3% in. So your portfolio will make around on average 7% every year. You'll leave 3% in for inflation. So your money keeps growing. Your $625,000 in year two is going to be like $18,000 higher, $20,000 higher, something like that. Six, Yeah, so it'd be like... Uh, yeah, like $20,000 higher. So you'd leave about $20,000 in, that's the 3% growth for inflation. So on year two, you have $645,000 in your portfolio and you've withdrawn the $25,000 you need to live. Because the idea is you're growing at 7% every year. That's roughly what the stock market averages. Now, part of that involves having a percentage in what we'll call, and again, I'm being super conservative, by the way, saying the 7%, I'm doing a 7% um, before inflation. So I'm doing a 4% real return is what I'm assuming that uh, you can withdraw. So I'm assuming that $625,000 adjusts with inflation each and every, so the, the buying power uh, stays the same if you throw the 3% for inflation back into your portfolio. So the 4% is what you can withdraw without depleting the buying power of your 625,000. Does that make sense? So you can withdraw 4% every year. Again, if you're in real estate or you have a percentage of your wealth in real estate, you can withdraw around an 8% safe withdrawal rate. I still want to do a video about this. I sat on Excel and crunched all the numbers. And based on my portfolio, I buy 10 cap properties. So my down payment typically performs at 40% rate of return. At a 40% cash flow rate of return, assuming appreciation is equal to inflation. So basically there's no appreciation. It just moves out of inflation, which is, you know, we've tended to see growth of real estate be slightly outpacing inflation, but pretty much the appreciation on your property covers the, um, the inflation if you own it in cash. Now, if you're levered, if you put 20% down on your property, now when it appreciates 3%, as you guys know, we're levered five to one, 20% down means every dollar you put up, the bank puts up four. So every dollar you put up buys you $5 in real estate. So if you're buying real estate, then, or percentage of your portfolio is in real estate, you could easily withdraw 8%. That's like the most conservative withdrawal rate I've, I can think of from a real estate portfolio that's levered up, meaning it has mortgages attached to the properties. So that's why I love real estate. That's why I preach about real estate because you can't do levered stock investing the way you can with real estate. You just can't go borrow. At, I, I have a mortgage going on my house at 1.34%, five-year variable. You can't, I, I can't borrow money that cheaply against any other asset class except for real estate in Canada. Even, even my businesses, I can't go with my businesses to the bank and borrow at 2%. But I can take a property to the bank and I can go borrow at 2%, 80% loan to value on it, like that, right? So that's the advantage of real estate. But back to our, our main point there, I'm glad you brought brought that to a pause, give it a chance for everyone to 
to ruminate. Yeah, I know, Anthony, that's crazy. A 1.34. It was a glitch on uh, HSBC's website and they are honoring it. So we'll see if they fund tomorrow, but um, fingers crossed there's a commitment to the lawyer and the refinance is going on. It's been appraised. Everything's good to go. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic that, um, that I was able to get that rate. It, uh, it was a glitch on the website and then Prime dropped. Just as Prime was dropping, remember you guys I was doing videos when Prime dropped 50 basis points, et cetera, and so forth. Their website automatically adjusted the rate and I just locked it in with a screenshot and they're honoring it for me. I guess um, got lucky, applied in the 24 hour window that it was open. It's because I go to websites like ratespy.com and I get alerts and I watch the rates all the time. They send me alerts whenever rates change and this one popped up and I locked it in. Um, ratespy.com, I pump them. They should really give me a sponsorship because I tell everyone to go there. They're better than Ratehub. I'm sorry, Ratehub, if someone's watching this, um, it's just like, I love your credit card stuff, but their interest rates, you have to pay I think that they do sponsorships with their ads and they only promote the lenders that pay them the most money, whereas RateSpy actually is pretty authentic and they have better rates. So um, anyway, get off that tangent here. But the idea is that how do you get there? If you look at the simple math, it works like this. If you could save 90% of your income, so if you made it 50 grand a year, 100 grand a year, made 100 grand a year, 50,000 from one spouse, 50,000 from the other, uh, that gives you 100 grand a year as a family, so 50,000 each. It's pretty average Canadian type uh, earnings. If you made 50 grand each and you could find a way to live on 10 grand a month, which means you probably had roommates or you rented your basement apartment or you found a way to keep costs low, maybe you had to live with your parents or something, but you could do this for a short period of time, right? To retire early. What are you willing to sacrifice to gain this, this new thing, right? Or maybe you just pick up a weekend side hustle that covers your living expenses. So on, on the evenings when you get home from work at six o'clock, you pick up a side business and you make just enough money to cover your food, your housing, your basic necessities, you cut everything back and you live frugally for five years. And if you can find a way to save 90% of your day job income, 90%, that's, what you have to, that's the target you have to get to. I did it, so I know it's possible. I have other friends who have done it, I know it's possible. Especially with rental properties, you can use the rental properties to offset your living expenses and then all your day job salary can go to, towards saving. I know a lot of people to do this, you pick up, there's tons of side hustles you can pick up to just generate income. And uh, if you can't pick up a side hustle, you can always cut your expenses. So works like this. If you're to save, if you're on the math, you need to replace 10% of your income in, ah, here. Oh, my laptop's dead, darn it. I didn't plug my laptop in before I started this and my charger's not in this room, or I'd bring up the, the spreadsheet right now that I have that would walk you guys through it. But essentially the math works like this. So in, I guess we'll just do it, we'll try to do it in my head. I have a spreadsheet that I did this on a couple years ago, but if you're making 100 grand and you're saving 90% of it, so just, just for easy math, we're gonna do it this way. So year one, you save $90,000, right? And you need, you're, you're trying to replace that 10% expenses, right? So if you live on 90% savings rate, then 10% yeah, of your expenses is at $10,000 a year. So you have to build up a big enough portfolio to produce like 10,000 a month in passive income to cover those living expenses. And if you're super frugal, you can do that. Now, if you save like 50% of your income, the math works out with compound interest to like 16 years, I think it is, um, to retire early. So if you wanted to save half of your income and you had no way to increase your income, you weren't willing to pick up a side hustle, you didn't want to buy real estate, you just wanted to invest in stocks and just work your job, um, then, then you would need to be working about 16 years at a 50% savings rate. So if you were to make 100 grand a year and save 50,000 of it, then that would get you there in 16 years. Again, if you didn't buy any real estate. If you bought real estate or you had some great appreciation or things like that, then you'd get there a lot faster. And more likely than not, that's what we'll see. We've seen appreciation, we've seen those types of things happen. We've seen leverage, um, but yeah, the math is dead simple. In five years, you can get there. Early retirement extremes, Jacob Lund Fisker, did it as the living proof. I think he, what did he make? It's been so long since I've read the book, but I think um, I got a chance to meet him too. He's a great guy, super frugal. 
But uh, he, he's able to live, geez, I think they live on like 9,000 a year each. So his him and his girlfriend each spend like, or maybe their wife now, each spend like seven to $9,000 a year, right? And the idea is that they live super frugally. And that's an example of like, if you're willing to forego the, the modern conveniences and you're willing to live a little bit more frugally, you don't have to work. And so that's basically the idea behind it. But as you move from 90% savings rate down to 50% savings rate, the timeline increases. So I think at like, geez, I think at 90% savings rate, it's gotta be darn close to like three or four years. If you're at 75% savings rate, it's at like, uh, and by the way, this will be your take home income too. So I'm just assuming um, take home. So that would mean like if you make 50 grand a year, most people make 50 grand a year, their take home is like 38, something like that. So um, here in Canada anyway, after you get your, your credits back and you contribute to your RSP, you're around 38,000 net take home. And that's after all your deductions and, and then credits back. So that'd be like someone making 50 grand a year, two couples, then they really are taking home like 38 times two. So 76,000 take home on 100,000 gross for a couple. But um, yeah, I mean, it's totally doable. We were doing it. One thing that I like to apply with real estate investing, and this is something that I like, or, or picking up side hustle businesses, is I say this, like, if you can't find a way, first off, like, save as much as you can. Get your spending way down. Like, if you're spending $50,000 a year, you're spending every, let's say you're a couple, you each made 50 grand a year, and you're spending $75,000 a year, which is almost your entire take home, um, you're saving a thousand bucks a year, you need to cut your spending. Like, right now, I can tell you, you can guarantee cut your spending. I, if I can live, I live in an $850,000 house. And I live in a great neighborhood in London. I'm not bragging, I'm just making a point. And I spend less than two grand a month. My mortgage, and that's because I don't include mortgage principal. I only include mortgage interest in my expenses. Mortgage principal, like the principal portion, the pay down on your mortgage payment, let's say your mortgage payments, I think mine in this case is like 2,400 bucks a month or something. If it's 2,400 bucks a month and like 1,000 is principal and 1,400, or 1,400 is principal and 1,000 is interest, the 1,000 interest is your real expense. So there's the thousand interest, there's your property taxes, there's your insurance, there's your utilities, there's your maintenance on your house, there's your you know transportation, miscellaneous spending, all of that, less whatever rental income you can bring in from your house. So if you have rooms in your, in your basement or you have an apartment in your basement, or if you don't, change your life. If you wanna retire, go buy a duplex that's soundproofed and rent it out and then you'd be able to get your costs way down, which is what I've always had to do. Um, that's how I can live in it. $850,000 house and have no mortgage payment because I house hack. But um, if I was just to live with no roommates, if it was like that important to me, which it isn't, I actually enjoy having um, roommates, it's just a thing for me. We have our own separate units, like we're, so, like we're um, they're soundproof and they're locked and so we can't, we don't need to go into each other's unit, but um, if that was important to you and you didn't want to have anyone living beside you, you just have to live in a lot smaller house. Like we'd probably do like the tiny house living, to be honest, if I was not house hacking, I'd probably just, you know, I'd probably just uh, buy a $200,000 house in London or I'd rent somewhere cheap. Like, dude, there's some nice rentals around here for like 16, 17, $1,800 a month. I've seen some new build houses rent for 1,900 plus utilities. So you could you could find some places to live relatively cheaply. Um, and then just, again, like keep costs low that way, right? But not spending, not spending on the miscellaneous stuff, not spending on eating out, all this kind of stuff. If you save and, and basically spend less then you save more and you retire sooner. Pop up, does your 25,500 expense include debt? And I don't have any debt. Um, any debt that I have is tied to rental properties which produce cash flow. So debt payments typically that I have would be like, I have a mortgage for I think 1200 bucks on a rental property. And let's say it's rented out for 2000 a month. 
then I'm after all expenses, cash flow positive. So my debts are paid for by assets. I don't borrow for a car because a car depreciates. That's a bad use of capital. I wouldn't borrow to finance education because again, you guys know I graduated school debt free. I wanted to write a book on it, but then I got busy working and grinding. I was like, ah, now I'm too old. I've been out of school too long to write a book on like how to graduate university debt free. And I went to the most expensive um, university in Canada, the Richard Ivey School of Business, like 27,000 a year. But um, you know, it's, if you work hard and save, you can graduate debt-free. So there's no need to go into debt for school. Um, just work as you go. Like I think tuition on average in, in Canada here is like 9,000 a year, something like that, nine, 10,000 a year. If you can't make $10,000 in a year, like what are you doing? Um, school is not a full-time thing. You can spend 40, 50 hours maximum on school. And that's if you like really are struggling and need to study. But then that leaves another 50 hours a week for, for other stuff. Like people are awake Geez, how many hours are you awake in a week? If you're, if you're awake like 17 hours a day times seven days a week, like you get like over a hundred hours, well over a hundred hours in a week to do stuff, right? Like maybe you got to budget 15 hours a week for relaxation or something, right? But the pe problem is people budgeting 60 hours a week for Netflix and uh, they should be spending time with part-time job. That's, that's the honest truth. Um, people don't work hard enough and that's why there's consumer debt the way that it is today. And uh, there you go. $10,000 a year in Alberta, not hard to graduate without, without debt, just gotta work. That's it, apply for scholarships, apply for bursaries, and then go get a part-time job and live frugally. People are out there at the bar like dropping 150 bucks of mommy and daddy's money. And oftentimes it's not mommy and daddy's money. Oftentimes it's OSAP debt that they're racking up while they're at the club and they're enjoying it and this and that. And it's, um, yeah, everyone, when I was going to school was living in like a really nice, I had buddies paying $700 a month for their places, I was renting a crappy room for $299 a month. My rent was half everyone else's. Now I had a small single bed room. I didn't have like nice amenities while I went to school. Um, I, I biked and I took the free bus pass that came with our tuition. Um, I just, I was frugal. I didn't go out, I didn't go out and drink, go to the bar, do any of that kind of stuff. That's how you get there. That same mentality though, if you graduate from school, you continue to live like a student, then you will build wealth fast, especially if you're working full time. So that's how you retire early. It's not the sexy, I mean, there's multiple ways to retire early. You could spend a lot more if you're earning a lot more, right? Like if you were to get into real estate the way I have, like right now I could spend, I could easily spend $100,000 a year and I would still be building wealth. My, my earn rate is so high now that it doesn't matter as much what my burn rate, burn rate is. Out of principle, I don't like to waste. Um, so for me, it just doesn't, just doesn't make sense, but um, for someone who really needed that luxury in their life, they needed that BMW and they need this and that, that's okay, just work harder and then you can have that and still retire early. But you can't have everything. You can't spend everything you earn and not wanna work hard and expect to retire early. There's certain inputs are required to retire early and those inputs are spending a lot less, finding ways to earn more money to offset the spend and then saving the difference so you can actually retire early and live on that. But let's do it with, um, Someone I was gonna ask, I'll do the Q&A now because we're 35 minutes in. But um, I guarantee I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw a comment come up that said, what would you do if you started early? Or started again and had to retire early. So uh, I'll walk you guys through it because I would use real estate to do it because it's way, way faster than the slow grind of myself and my wife working full time and just saving. Which again, that strategy can work, especially with house hacking, we can do it in like five years. But um, I wish I had my laptop on right now, it's dead. If I had my laptop on, I could just crunch the numbers in Excel and show you guys just how quick I could uh, 
could do this, but we'll try and do it in the head. Try and do it up here. I'm not as sharp as I once was. I used to be so good with arithmetic in my head. I used to, be able to do like long division and a multiplication in my head. In high school, I was really good with that. I used to memorize, I had the whole periodic table of elements memorized too for, for like a grade 10 science class. It was like hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, and whatever. Um, I've lost it now. Mike purchased a condo in Vancouver for 520,000 two years ago. Martin asks, I moved back to London, so renting it out with no cash flow, unfortunately. I can sell it right now for 490,000 with a $30,000 loss, but can I invest in London? That's a bummer. Um, must have invested in Vancouver at the top of the market. It's always interesting. I just want to like make a random aside, but all the investors I meet that invest in Vancouver and Toronto, they're always, their logic for investment has typically been grounded in, um, oh, the appreciation's better. Oh, um, you know, this and that are, are better about this market. And like fundamentally the markets are better. I agree. They're more stable and economically strong. That's why the cap rate's so low in Vancouver and Toronto. But, um, the appreciation has been better in the smaller towns like London than it has, um, than it has in, uh, in Vancouver or Toronto, to be honest, like Toronto, um, the appreciation rates have been lower compared to somewhere like London over the last 20 years, even. So the appreciation game isn't there. The cash flow isn't there other than like wealth capital preservation. Um, yeah, I can't, can't think of a good reason why um, you want to invest in those markets unless you had to live there. And I can't see a reason why you'd have to live there because you could just live in the outskirts where it's cheaper. But I, I don't know. I got buddies who live in Vancouver. I, I actually, um, like three really good friends of mine live in Vancouver. Um, I should just ask them. One buddy of mine, he would tell me, he would tell me that uh, it's about a lifestyle and that there's no, you can't put a, a price on never being able to be evicted of owning your house. And so those are all actually, emo those, those carry no, um, economic um, weight. They're all emotional logic reasons. There's logic to it. It's just, it's emotional, not, um, not of any good economic fundamental. But to finally answer your question, Martin, um, depends on a lot of factors. Like, do you have a breakout fee on your mortgage? Do you have a mortgage on the property? If you could bring out $490,000 cash on your property and then redeploy that in London, $500,000 goes really far in London. $500,000 levered up that's enough down payment to buy $2.5 million in real estate. And in London, you could qualify, right? Ultra Dodge, I just saw Papa. How old are you? I am 27. 27 years old, I know. Started this channel when I was 25. It's crazy, I'm now 27. Retired when I was 24. So for the last three years, I've been just, you know, hanging out and enjoying the good life. Guess, see, yeah, I'm growing a little, uh, little goatee. Just starting out here. Um, yeah, I had a beard going, but I, I shaved it off because his cheeks were getting itchy. Okay, next question. Let's do the lightning round. I'll go a little faster here because we're 39 minutes in. And I saw someone pop up and say uh, that I should write a book. And I do want to write a book. I have, I'm looking at a space where I think there'd be a great little tiny house studio that I could build. And uh, I'd love to just lock myself out there and spend the you know, the better part of a summer, just writing a couple of really good books. But if anyone knows a good ghostwriter, hook me up. I might be open to that too, because then I could spend more time focused on growing the real estate business and still get a book out there. But yeah, I've, I started writing a couple of books and I just never finished them. I started one about how to graduate school debt-free. I started another one on how to pay down all your debt in three years. 
I uh, was starting to write another book on the roadmap to early retirement. That was, that was gonna be a good one. It's gonna be really comprehensive. I was gonna write one on uh, my story. I plan to do that. But again, I haven't accomplished enough in my life yet. Like I've gotta to get to 100 million or a billion status to really have any major impact. Millionaire Mindset Millennial. Nice name. Hey, how's it going? Um, and it's gonna, I'm gonna get there. Like I just run the numbers and, and I, I see like at a 13% compounded annual growth rate, we're looking at, geez, um, I should be able to hit a billion in my life. I don't know what the, the value of that billion will be, probably closer to like 500 million buying power, but um, yeah, like it's, if you can build wealth early on in your life, it is the best possible thing you can do for your financial future. The sooner you start building wealth and then compounding that wealth every year, the sooner, the better off you'll be just in general. Like if you gave someone millions of dollars in their 20s and they started growing that at 13, 15% compounded, geez, like the sky's the limit, right? Yeah, something like that, DD. About 40 years, something like that. But hang out guys, because 40 years from now, maybe I'll still be on YouTube here and I'll have a, a proper crew and I'll be super wealthy. I keep practicing the principles. I've been trying to target a 25% growth rate on my net worth and I've hit that consistently for eight years now. Uh, that's because of real estate, right? Like 25% growth on my real estate. It's getting hard on my net worth. It's getting harder though, because as I build equity in my properties, I have to pull it out and then keep working. If I let the equity build up, if I let the mortgages get paid down or I let the properties appreciate and I don't pull that equity back out, then the equity is trapping the property and it's not earning any money for me. So the key to keeping a 25% growth rate means you have to pull the money out of the property and keep the money rolling. That's hard to do. Um, I have to find like a deal every two weeks or three weeks like a, to buy a property in order, or, or find like big deals every couple of months or, or buy businesses every year in order, to, uh, at least one business every year in order to keep that trajectory going. So when you get to like Warren Buffett's level, you need a whole team just to, geez, you need like, yeah, you need the whole army of people just to work on managing your capital. And I'm learning this now just like at the, the start of the, the tip of the iceberg, but I'm, I have you know, friends who have like 10, 20, 30 million and or people I've met, not really acquaintances, I guess, that have more money. And it's a, it's a job just keeping their money working hard for them. Like it's easy to have your money sit there and work for you at 7%, but to keep your money working for you at 20 or 25%, you have to input skills. You have to input like, if you're buying businesses strategically, you have to be adding time. So it's like your, your money plus your skill and your time. And money can unlock you know, higher returns if you put your time into it, right? And that's a big thing I've always learned is that if you just invest your money and put no time into it, your money won't grow near as hard or as fast for you as it would have. So food for thought, you gotta spend time to make money. It's not just money makes money, it's time, money, and skill make more money. It's easy, a fool and his money are soon parted, right? So that's something to, to keep in mind. If you're, if you're silly with your money and you don't take good care of it, your soldiers are gonna leave you. They're gonna abandon you. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Brandon, Bob, Bob, Steven. Good to see you guys all on. DD. Okay, so DJ says, buy Bitcoin, silver, and gold. I wrote an article, geez, I don't know, two years ago or something like that about, Bitcoin was trading at like a little over $20,000. Um, I think that was roughly the price point, a little over $20,000. And people were calling it was gonna go to the moon. Everyone's like, it's a hard thousand dollars for Bitcoin. Like, you know, there was this time where like even institutional investors are starting to get involved. And I wrote an article back then about how I didn't believe in it. I don't want any cryptocurrency at all. Um, I'm, I would hold a tiny percent in your portfolio maybe. I can see how it's some value, 
But um, here's the thing with cryptocurrency. It's the same thing with gold and silver. I, I hold gold and silver, physical gold and silver, not paper, because of, you know, if the, at the end of the world, if the fiat currency collapses, right? It's good to have some physical stuff you can barter with. Same thing I believe in land. But here's the thing with cryptocurrency. It isn't tangible, as in you don't physically have it. If the network goes down, it's possible it can be hacked to be taken, right? So there's, one, it's not physical. That's a minor problem, because you can fix those types of problems. Two, it doesn't provide any cash flow. The only play with cryptocurrency, and don't get me on a tangent here, because I could do a whole video just on this, and I wrote the article back then about it, and maybe I'll share the article. I'll post it on LinkedIn for those people who follow me on LinkedIn. I'll go find that post and then share it there so you guys can read it. But I predicted Bitcoin would drop to like 6,000. I thought the intrinsic value was way lower. Um, I'll get to all your questions. I see you guys jump in the comments here, and I promise I'll try to do my best to get to all those. But um, cryptocurrency, it generates no cash flow. You're buying something that has no intrinsic value at all. Its only value is the perceived value someone else will pay you for it. So if tomorrow there's a better crypto, better technology, is this still live? I believe so. Um, Alexander, I believe it is still live. Someone confirmed you guys can still see me. The clock is still ticking. I see 70, 70 people in the stream. So I, I think it's still going. Um, 72 people in the stream. So yeah, it's still going. But um, okay, so... The problem with crypto is that it generates no cash flow. It has only one stream of income, and that it's not even a stream of income. It has, you can sell it to someone else for more than you bought it for. I'm gonna try to go through all the comments. I'm gonna try, but I'm going on a tangent here because people are obsessed with cryptocurrency in general, and I'm just not. I don't believe in it long term. I like to buy real estate that generates cash flow. I like that with real estate, you have multiple avenues of tax efficiency, uh, cash flow to service the debt. If you can't sell the real estate, at least you have cash flow. If you're stuck holding crypto, it's doing nothing for you. It's like a gold bar. A gold bar, even gold. Like I have a little bit of gold and silver. 